On Sunday, January 5th, just two weeks ago in the evening, uh, an actress, Michelle Williams, took the stage at the Golden Globes and gave a speech after receiving an award. She said, I'm grateful for the acknowledgement of the choices I've made. I'm also grateful to have lived in a moment in our society where choice exists because as women and as girls, things can happen to our bodies that are not yet our choice. I tried my very best to live a life of my own making and not just a series of events that happened to me, but one that I can stand back and look at and recognize my handwriting all over, sometimes messy and scrawling, sometimes careful and precise, but one that I carved with my own hand. I wouldn't have to be able, I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose, to choose when to have my children and with whom, when I felt supported and able to balance our lives knowing us, all mothers know that the scales must and will tip towards our children. Now I know my choices might look different than yours. But I thank God or whomever you pray to that we live in a country founded on this principle that I'm free to live by my faith and you are free to live by yours. I'm not sure where your heart and mind went when you heard what she said. I'm guessing for some it went to anger or disgust or sadness. She sounded so confident in her rights, but I don't know her story. I don't know what she's been through. We never truly know all of it. In fact, the person sitting in your row this morning might have mustered all of their strength just to come. We don't know what people are going through. Nicole, age 19, from Kentucky, wrote in a New York magazine, it was this past spring, the due date's coming up, and I'm dreading it. I wanted to keep it. My boyfriend always had football practice, so he couldn't go to the doctor appointments with me. If he had gone, he would have felt differently, but he said, no way. And I wanted to show him that I loved him enough to do it for him. When I was 13 weeks, we made an appointment at the closest clinic in Kentucky, four hours away, but the night before, we decided not to go. At two in the morning, he called and said, get dressed. I said, I don't want to go. We both cried the whole way there. I don't know if abortion is killing, but I'd always been against it. When I told him the credit card scanner at the clinic wasn't working, he asked me if I was making it up. We went to get $1,000 from a gas station ATM. I was hysterical, and he said, okay, you don't have to go back. I was so happy and relieved. Then he said, we drove all this way. Stop crying. Act like a woman. I was angry, but I was so sleepy and tired of fighting. When I had the ultrasound, I asked for the picture, and the nurse said, seriously? A month later, he said he regretted doing it. When I cry about it, I cry alone. He thinks it would make me sad to talk about it, but I don't want our baby to think that we forgot. In Luke chapter 7, we read of a sinful woman entering a home of a Pharisee. You remember these guys, right? The Pharisees, the religious elite, the separatists, they couldn't be around or seen with anyone of a sinful background. 
So in this story, put yourself in their position. A religious man, the elite, serious about sin and holiness, morality and immorality. I don't just have anyone sit at my table. He's even taken a big risk asking Jesus to sit at his table because he isn't like the other Pharisees. And Jesus sits down, reclines at the table, enjoying the meal, and, and she comes, this woman, this great sinner. And she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment and put yourself in her shoes. She knows all about these Pharisees, these religious men, mostly self-righteous. They always reject sinners. They reject the dirty and filthy. She's there. She has the flask. It's expensive, very expensive. And maybe she planned on anointing him all along, or perhaps she noticed that it hadn't been done. We don't know. But she comes and kneels down, weeping. She begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her tears. She kisses him and anoints him with the ointment. And the men in the room are disgusted. They think to themselves, a sinner can't touch a holy man. But Jesus knows what's in the Pharisee's mind. He knows what's in all of our minds. And he confronts their thoughts, which I'm sure would have been alarming. And he hears what's in our head. And he gives a parable, and the punchline of this parable is the question, who loves me more, the one forgiven little or the one forgiven much? And Luke writes, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And then I believe Jesus turns and looks her in the face and says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And I believe in my mind, he reaches down to lift up her chin. Because I'm sure this woman doesn't make eye contact with people. She most likely been abused used for her adult life. She was viewed as a commodity in that culture. I'm sure she didn't want to look up. She didn't want to catch anyone's eye. Shame, I'm sure, fills her heart as the piercing eyes of religious elite stare her down in this room. She knows what she's done. She knows her life. She's reminded of it all the time. But Jesus shows her love and he picks up her face and he makes eye contact like no one is willing to do in this room, in this room of the elites. And he recognizes her as a person. She's a human being, not a product to be consumed, not something to be used and thrown away. He doesn't look at her like that at all, but looks at her as one who's made in the image of God. And he commends her faith and forgives her of her sin 
and tells her to go in peace. And friends, this is the radical love that Jesus has for people, for sinners. To be a big sinner isn't the worst thing. To not ask for forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ is the worst thing. You can recover from a sinful past. Our church is full of people who have found their forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But what I've seen in the lives of Christians is usually we walk around with the belief that God has this mild disappointment in us all the time. And in this story in Luke 7, a powerful moment is when Jesus offers forgiveness because she seeks it only from him. And if we're in Christ, God sees us as forgiven. The other thing that stood out to me in this passage in Luke is that Jesus isn't outside of this moment judging her like the Pharisees, but he enters in to her space into her life, and he's with her. And the same is true for us, friends. You can't sin yourself out of the possibility of forgiveness from God. There is more grace and forgiveness in Jesus' little finger than sin in you. I share the story in Luke 7 because our hearts naturally turn to defend our morality against others And our hearts sometimes naturally go to condemn others. But the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the kind of darkness that this day symbolizes can only be removed by the forgiveness of God. And we can only walk through a sensitive subject like the sanctity of human life with the understanding of how we can find hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. Each year we pause for a moment to remember the dignity of human life, and this morning I want to spend an extended time. There's a lot of darkness in the issue of human life with millions of abortions each year. This is a moral issue, and it's an incredibly important one. But at the same time, we're called to care not only for the least of these who are aborted, who are killed in the womb, we're to care for the ones who go through this women who choose this, and sometimes the men who force it. And by no means am I defending their decision of abortion, but I'm calling us as a church family to love and care for those who've made this decision, to care for them with love and kindness and grace. See, being pro-life means that we care for all of life, not just life in the womb. And so we need to be serious about our support of babies in the womb, most definitely. But let's not demonize these young women and men who come from horrific situations. Jesus doesn't handle that way ever with them. He doesn't tell the woman at the well. He doesn't tell the woman caught up in adultery. And he doesn't tell the sinner at his feet anointed him. He doesn't give them a moral lecture. He lifts up their head He looks in their eyes and he gives grace and hope. He gives himself to them. So this morning, I want to go back to the second book in the Old Testament, back to Exodus. 
are using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 42. It talks about the rescue of life and the protection of babies, and then I'm going to have some application for us at the end. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to walk through this chapter, uh, chapter one and, and part of chapter two this morning. So would you join me as I pray? God, I asked this morning for sensitivity and grace as we walk through this sensitive and necessary topic this morning. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you that we can walk through this as a church family and we ask that you would give more and more grace to us this morning. I pray that we would be a loving and caring family to those who have walked this dark road before. Give us grace, give us love. Make yourself known to them and to us this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna read through this passage, but stop along the way. There's no uh, outline, you just have to take notes as I go. Exodus chapter one, verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. And if you remember back in the fall, we talked through this section at the end of Genesis and how the book ends in Genesis and how God rescue, he's gonna rescue his people and he brings them then to safety in the land of Egypt through the position of Joseph and how God worked miraculously through his life. Look at verse seven, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And the Hebrew word for increased greatly has the idea of swarming. Increasing so fast and large that it creeps into other areas. And so God's people are growing, and the pressure was on the Egyptians now. They're they're swarming the land. Now look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We've been there in life, haven't we? Life is humming along quite nicely, and then someone new comes and they don't know you. They don't know the agreement that was made before. And this new king didn't know Joseph. He didn't know what had transpired years earlier. He didn't know the grace that Joseph brought to his own people by setting aside food during the lean years of famine. He didn't know. He didn't know about them, and now he's scared. He's fearful. This population is growing and growing. And he says in verse 9, he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. You hear the words of fear and dread from him, too mighty and too many. And then he says in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. To deal shrewdly means to teach them a lesson, to make them wise. I'm I'm assuming he's saying, we're going to show them how strong Egypt is. And he says, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so there's, there are two fears listed here in verse 10. Do you see them? First, they're, they're might to fight against us. They're worried that if they grow too big, 
that they would lose if there's a battle. There's too many of them. But the second one, though, the second fear is they might leave. And there's too many of them, so they, they wouldn't have the labor to build what they wanted to build. And so he doesn't want them too big to overpower them, but he doesn't want them to leave either. He just wants what he wants. He wants to have control for the Egyptians to flourish and for the Israelites to serve. And in verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This was the plan. This, God knew this long before. Right? In Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God knew that this would happen. It had been prophesied long before that God would allow his people, to bring his people, in fact, into this nation to serve as slaves, that they would suffer, they'd be mistreated. God promises to bring a rescuer from their midst. God had a plan all along. But Pharaoh was fearful. Tries to whittle down the, the nation with hard labor, but how does it respond? They grow even more. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrath and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And what we read here is ancient abortion. Because the first plan of trying to break them with hard labor didn't work. So Pharaoh changes course and tries a new plan. We're not sure of the time frame between these policies of population and oppression that could have been even yet a new king on the scene. And, and the term Hebrew here is used for the first time in Exodus and, and earlier in the book of Genesis it seemed to be used in a cultural sense, but now it's used in a racial sense. The Hebrews were the underclass nation, the, the foreigners. They weren't good enough to be Egyptians. I don't know about you, but I, I never quite understood what a birth stool was until we were in Sweden. My wife, Katie, was pregnant with our daughter, Charlotte, 36 weeks pregnant. Is that accurate? I don't remember. She was really pregnant. And we, we checked into the hospital, and labor was moving along, and, and, and the Swedes were really gracious, speaking English to us, because we didn't know any Swedish at that point, and asked us, do you want to try the Swedish way of birthing? And brought this old-looking wooden stool contraption. And if you could have seen our eyes, 
That's all I remember from that day because they kept bringing me coffee and open-faced sandwiches. Katie was birthing and I'm just enjoying the good stuff. But here, he, he says the birthing stool, and in this time frame, a birthing stool would have been a pair of stones, and there would have been a, a space between them, and the woman would sit on them while giving birth, and, and here the midwives were instructed, in fact, commanded by their wicked pharaoh to inspect when the child came out, and if it was born a male, they were to kill it quietly. And pharaoh's hope was to reduce the scope of military opposition from the Israelites. Rid the males, keep the females as slaves. Do you see the pure wickedness in the request from this Pharaoh? If this policy is enforced, he hoped he could just fully destroy the, the strength of the Israelites. And we live in a culture today that the same wicked policy is in place. But it's not just boys, but maybe girls are horrifically killed each day in the womb. And we see in this passage, though, that we're not the first group of people to kill our kids. Pharaoh did it here. We see it in other places in the Old Testament of sacrificing their children in this demonic power that's been invading human spaces for a long time. Little babies that are sucked from their mother's womb. They say at eight weeks old, the baby can suck their thumb, they can recoil back from prickling, which means if you were to draw blood from their heel, they would move their leg to avoid pain. But now in our country, in a number of states, we've moved so far to late-term abortions. And late-term abortions means you could kill a baby in the womb of its mother when it could be sustained in life outside of the womb. And it's hard to wrap our mind around this because in our country, if you were to kill an eagle or a grizzly bear, the fines are incredible. If you were today to kill a bald eagle, you would be fined $5,000 or possibly in prison for one year, with the fine increasing to 10000 in two years if you did it a second time. If you were to kill a grizzly bear, you can be fined $25,000, and that's just the minimum. There are restitution and fines of intentionality that can be added. On top of that, authorities can confiscate any personal property that they deem complicit in the killing. And friends, it's demonic and broken that killing animals comes with a hefty penalty. And yet millions of human beings are killed each year. And when a bald eagle is sacred and a human baby is not, humanity has gone dark. And I've heard the argument that goes, that we're fighting for the right to choose, that it really is, isn't a baby it's a woman's body and you should have your hands off a woman's body and I get it. I, I, I want to stay it. They understand where they're coming from and I recognize their stories that, that, that are behind all these situations but scientifically speaking, this baby is not your body. It's in your body. But it's not you. 
And at the moment of conception, according to the Bible, a soul is in place, and on top of that, a brand new, completely unique strand of DNA is birthed out. Not your DNA, a baby's DNA. And at eight weeks, the, the heart is pumping blood to their body. It's not your heart, it's the baby's heart. The baby's kidneys are flushing the baby's fluids. Not your kidneys, the baby's kidneys. And even the idea that, that, the, that the law has no authority of a woman's body is absurd. There are all sorts of laws that say a woman can't treat her body any way she desires. You can't prostitute yourself. That's illegal. You'll get arrested for that. But this just goes to the blindness of this world when it comes to life and the sacredness of human life. And what we need today is the fear of God. And this is what we see in Exodus with these midwives. Look at verse 17, chapter 1. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And Exodus starts right off away, seeing a glimmer of hope for God's people. He will not ignore them. He will not forget them. He will not forget the promises to them. He will remember what he said to Abraham, I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And he's going to do this with the birth of a Hebrew baby. And God is mentioned here in verse 17, the first time in this book, and, and faith in him hadn't died out with the people. The midwives feared God. That means they had a true respect and reverence for him, which led them to act in a way that they knew was in accordance to his word. But especially seen here is that the midwives stood up for human life. They saw the sanctity of human life as a divine gift and were not prepared to act contrary to their consciences no matter what political pressure they came under. And the state in the form of the despot, Pharaoh had resorted to having helpless infants slaughtered to further his purposes and powers, but these women would not be party to it. These women were not national leaders. In fact, they had no leadership role at all, nor did they seek one. But their quiet, principled resistance thwarted the inexplicable cruelty of this tyrant. But what they were doing could not be hidden because little male boys would grow up and would be seen. I wonder if we have the same fortitude of these midwives here standing against those things that are morally wrong in our world. We don't have to have a position of authority to make a loud and strong difference against sin and sinfulness in our world. Sometimes it takes the form and a quiet refusal to be part of the system and to stand with God by serving others. Verse 18, the king of Egypt called midwives and said to him, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And just so you know, it's no trivial matter to be summoned before a dissatisfied, angry king. But the women kept their nerve. Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Friends, civil government has no right to command or compel anything contrary to the law of God. When the actions of political power run contrary to the requirements of God's word, we must refuse to comply. We must be like Peter and the apostles when they were questioned by the high priest in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. 
And do we have the same mindset in this world? How do you respond when you're asked to go against the clear teaching of Scripture, cheating or stealing or covering up? Do you go along with them or are you willing to stand with the truth of God's Word over and against the power that is seen in this world? Verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is his third try now. He's grasping at straws. But God is faithful. God was faithful to the midwives. He wouldn't let anything happen to them, and, and God's people would continue to multiply, to, to swarm the land, increasing, becoming a further threat to this king. And what would, good, what would our God do now? See, the, the secret threat only given to the midwives to kill all the males had failed, but now he launches now a public threat that all males are to be thrown into the Nile River. Now, all of Egypt knew and were involved. All of Egypt were responsible. The guilt of complicity is spread throughout all the Egyptians, and all would be involved in a judgmental catastrophe, which would be an ultimate consequence for the people. This was genocide, pure and simple. The policy that Pharaoh thought would minimize or exterminate the Israelites was overturned by God to become the channel by which he would raise up and equip the deliverer through whom he would set his people free. One author, Anthony Savaljo, says, God often sows the seeds of redemption in the seemingly barren soil of despair. And this is seen ever so clearly in the story of the birth of Moses that we have in chapter 2. God providentially supplied his people leader in the face of this evil act by Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh had declared that every Hebrew son would die, but God declared that he would send a son of the Hebrews to redeem his people. Who do you think won? God did. See, the kings of earth often shake their fists at heaven and decree themselves to be gods, but their decrees and plans have constantly been relegated to the dust heap of history by the power of God. Look at chapter 2. Verse 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. See, ordinarily, a birth of a son would be a happy event for the family, but with Pharaoh's edict, this event, I'm sure, turned somber real quick. When it says that she saw that he was a fine child, it doesn't mean that the parents had any special revelation about who this boy would grow up to be. I simply believe that she was face-to-face with a child of hers when she could look upon him and take him all in. She was enamored with him. And I'm sure she believed that God was going to use him in some way. See, this is why Pharaoh originally wanted to have the babies killed before the mother would see them. The power of sight is an amazing thing. 
CareNet on their website says that 97% of women who receive an ultrasound at their facility choose life for their babies. 97%. The power of sight changes things. So when we hand out those bottles, we're not doing it just because we've always done it. And I looked up, I was curious. It's $26,000 for an ultrasound machine, and I wonder. I wonder if our church could be a part of that. The power of sight changes things. It changed things for her. She hid him. In verse three, when she could hide him no longer, she took him for a bat. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and de- dabbled it with bitmen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And the faith of Moses' mother is extraordinary here. Her 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 trust in her God to be faithful. She doesn't seem to be fearful of the edict. She's more concerned about God and what God thinks. She was convinced of the divine purpose and the sanctity of human life. And she displays the same sort of courage that we see earlier with the midwives who rejected the edict from Pharaoh. In the verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. The providence of God is astounding this passage. Moses, his mother, hides him for three months, and when she no longer hides him, she sets him off in the water in a basket. His sister's there to watch this unfold, and the daughter of Pharaoh then is, is, is in the water, but she goes against her father. Direct rebellion against the Pharaoh and has pity on this child. See, Moses should be dead. But instead, he grows up in the house of the leader whom, through God's power, he would bring ruin one day. And the irony in this story is thick. See, God loves irony. Do you notice it? First, first thing I want you to notice, the Nile was the place where Israel's hopes were to be extinguished because this is the place where all the sons would go to die. But Moses' mother's action transforms the river which Pharaoh tried to use of his program of abortion to eliminate all the male children. He uses this into a source of deliverance for her son. Astounding, isn't it? Second, the edict to kill all the sons of the Hebrews came from the house of Pharaoh. But through the providence of God, he would use the very same house by means of his daughter and her compassion to save Moses and deliver his people from the wicked hands of the king. I'm not done. Third, 
the mother of Moses, releases her own son whom she loved and saw God's work and possibility in his hand to then a river and a basket. And I can't imagine the pain that she must have felt. In those moments to entrust him into a basket and see him float away thinking he's just going to drown possibly. The guilt she must have experienced. And then the surprise that God has for her because of Moses' sister. That she comes and brings the child back. And she's now paid to nurse her own son. And she could do so without any fear of the Egyptian authorities. If anyone questioned her, she could point them to the princess. See, the irony is thick. Last, consider the irony of the weak defeating the strong. Moses comes to the world as a defenseless baby and is saved by three women. When the almighty, powerful Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world, cannot stop it. He cannot control every person. And these three women and a baby sow seeds of Pharaoh's demise through this child, Moses, in the power of God. I encourage you to read the rest of Exodus. There's so much there in Moses' life, but yet there's still one greater than Moses. See, the account of Exodus, of God's preserving and protecting of Moses, provides us with an incredible comfort. But most importantly, it points our hearts and minds to the one who would rescue us from our sins. Like Moses, Jesus was born at a time when Israel was under the foot of a foreign power, trying to snuff them out. The providence of God protects Jesus in the same manner that it protected Moses. And while there's many comparisons that can be made between Moses and Jesus, there's, there's a great contrast to be made. See, Moses matured in the house of Pharaoh to eventually become the mediator of the old covenant and the human vessel through whom God delivered his people out of their bondage. But in stark contrast, Jesus was a mediator of a new and more glorious covenant. He personally delivered his people and he delivered and saved them from their sin and death from the wrath of God. Jesus' work of redemption is clearly greater than that of Moses. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus is God's faithful son, the builder of that house. And his glory far surpasses Moses's, and the glory of the Exodus is eclipsed by the glory of God's providence and bringing about redemption through Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus came into the world at the right time to secure salvation for his people. Are you one of his people? 
Have you repented of your sin, of trusting yourself, and in turn, in faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? I pray that you would today understand your need of salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to a message like this? The first thing, and this is the reason for the introduction and the stories, is that we need to be sensitive to those who have had abortions. There are and have been women in our midst who have walked through this road with shame that is overwhelming. But I wonder if there are some today walking this road quietly and they've never told anyone. Just as Christ didn't condemn in those stories, neither do we. And my encouragement to you, sister, is don't carry that weight any longer by yourself. You don't have to. This is the blessing of being a part of a church community. When we are a family and we can walk through these issues together. And I recognize you might not have any outlet to talk about these things because usually you can't walk into work and spill to your boss. But you have a church. You have brothers and sisters right here who will love you and care for you and listen. And their role is to pick up your face and to look at your tear-filled eyes with great compassion and give you hope from our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only women here, Perhaps there are men who pushed, who funded, who forced a girl to have an abortion. You are free to come and to confess and seek the mercy of God for your sins and know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Don't suffer in darkness. This is why the church exists in one form to minister to one another. Second, as a church, we need to be praying. We need to be actively praying for governor officials in our land and specifically in the state of Washington. We need to pray that this evil practice would be eliminated in our lifetime. And pray that God would open the blind eyes of our governor officials and pray for wisdom and courage for those in our society that do have a position of authority that they would come to understand the sacredness of human life and pray that God would end abortion in our nation and throughout the world. And third, and I realize this might be more sensitive and might be stepping into awkward ground, but I believe it needs to be said. I am fearful that we in the pro-life movement might be sliding away from the gospel from biblical roots to join a political ideology that is inconsistent with the sacredness of human life. And what I mean is that being pro-life is more than just being pro-baby. It means that we are protectors of all human life. It means we take the position of compassion and kindness for the sick, for the poor and the homeless and the aged, and the mentally challenged, and even those that are displaced from their country of origin. 
we should care. Be careful, friends, not to politicize this issue. Being pro-life is not being for one political party. As a Christian, we have to be able to set aside our political leanings to serve and protect another human being. And so being pro-life means that we are pro-adoption and pro-fostering of kids. We shouldn't just care about kids while they're in the womb. We should care about those who have come out of the womb and step up to the game and serve. You know, two weeks ago when I heard Michelle Williams' speech and listened, I was grieved. The way in which our world views life, especially in the most helpless state of the womb, causes me to grieve. But I can't help but think of the Israelites during the time of Moses and seeing the edicts come down from the king and the death of the children. And few of us has faced the type of persecution that the Israelites faced in Egypt. But we do sometimes find ourselves in a time in our country where morality and the dignity of human life seem to be questioned by everyone. And while it can be difficult to trust God in these difficult times, it's often when we seem the most uncertain that he will work the most powerfully. As I said earlier, God often sows the seeds of redemption in seemingly barren soil of despair. Things don't look any better in 2020 regarding the sanctity of human life. But we do have the promise that God is coming back to make all things new. So let's continue to ask him to work. Let's continue to pray and to give of our time and our money. And let's continue to trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we read time and again of your care for people, your love for people, your loud voice and tear-wiping hand together. It gives us courage and compassion that we need to live as faithful advocates for human life. Father, we long for the day when death shall be no more death in all of its expressions. And today, especially thinking about the death of unborn children, we know there's a day coming when abortion will be no more. And in light of that day, give us wisdom, give us strength, give us fire and perseverance, give us sufficient grace we need to advocate for unborn children this day in our communities, among the nations of the world. May we be faithful to the task of serving mothers and fathers. May we be willing to lift up their heads and to give them hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. God, I pray, I beg that you would use us for your honor and glory alone. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.